the world around us screams for our attention. What's right? What's wrong? Who has the answers? Who should I believe? Come plug into a new reality. Let's give Albie a warm welcome, shall we? Yay! Come on, Albie. Don't you love it? Don't you love the seamless professionalism here on a Wednesday? No, it's not even Wednesday. <laughs> See? Oh, great stuff. Great stuff. All right. Hey, um, how are you tonight? I love Sunday nights. Hey, aren't Sunday nights cool? Just a little bit more cash. Sunday mornings are beautiful, but Sunday nights are just a bit more cash. I like it. I like it. Um, uh, I remember when I first became, I'm Elby, uh, uh, one of the youth workers here at Bethlehem Baptist, and it's great to be here, and thanks for coming out tonight. Um, I remember when I first became a Christian, uh, I, I was just kind of discovering the Bible, and uh, I went to Bible college in uh, Toronto at Tyndale Bible College, um, and I was just reading this stuff for the first time. The majority of the students there, you know, had been brought up in Christian homes, and they were studying to be pastors and stuff. Um, and, and I was forever stumbling across stuff in the Bible that was just blowing me away. And I love to see this happening with a lot of our young people these days, um, some of them just coming from, from out west, you know, they, um, not West Auckland, but just outside of God's family and just reading the Bible for the first time going, Albie, did you know that this is in here? And it's just the coolest conversations when people discover stuff for the first time. And I remember um, stumbling across the book of James way early on, and just it was just one of my top 66 books. It was in the top 66. I just loved the book of James, and I loved it because it was so gritty. Um, and, it, and it was real, and, I just, and it's just kind of funny that sort of 30-odd years later, here we are preaching out of the book of James, and we're calling the series Reality. So um, that's kind of cool, and especially the passage that I've been given here tonight, James chapter 3, um, that has really been one of, one of my favorite kind of passages and the most challenging, uh, because it's, it's talking about words. Um, and so before we go any further, before we read the scripture, just turn to the person beside you and, and just have a think. What is the most encouraging word you've ever heard? Easy one, eh? What's the most encouraging word, somebody saying something to you that really encouraged you? Or maybe the most encouraging word today or this week or this month if you can't think back that far. So go, you've got one minute. What's the encouraging word you heard? Go. Now, is there anybody, that's just, the minute's just about done, is there anybody who has never heard an encouraging word? Is it just a few? Oh, man, I'm sorry for you. Um, how about discouraging words, right? If I asked you, uh, what's a discouraging word that you've heard? You know, as the old song says, uh, we're never, do you want me to sing it? Home, home on the range where the deer and the antelope play. Ow! Where never was heard a discouraging word. I love that country western. So uh, if I asked you that question, would you find it easier to remember a discouraging word? Yeah? Yeah. Why is that? So tonight we're talking about the incredible power of words. Um, and let's just, uh, let's read the passage. And before we do, let's pray. Father, we, uh, we, we need you, God. We need you uh, every second of every day. We, uh, we need you, uh, especially when we open your word. We need uh, your power, your presence um, to open up our hearts and to cause us to be curious and to cause us to be hungry and to cause us to stop thinking about the rugby game, or the tomorrow's busy day, or our budget, or our finances, or our, our relationships, or our children. Uh, we need you, God, to make us hungry for you, and to make us hungry for the truth that's in this word, and the food that's in this word. And so we ask you to do that right now, to open our hearts, to make us hungry for you, 
And Father, we ask, and we know that you'll say yes. We ask you, Father, to, to with your presence and with your power and with your spirit, to meet us as we reach out for you and to give us something fresh tonight from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, now, many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. We, will st- we all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what he says is perfect. I'll read that again. Everyone, anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. When we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder, whatever the pilot, wherever the pilot wants to go. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest fire, what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire a world of evil among the the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole body. It sets the whole course of one's life on fire and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters... Can a fig tree bear olives or a grape vine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh water. James 3, 7 to 12. So we want to talk about um, this incredible uh, power that words have. And there's a lot in this passage. And tonight I just really want to pull out three ideas uh, that are directly in the passage. And the first one is how important words are. And the second one is... Uh, how much impact words can have. And the third one is the inception, the origin of words. Where do they come from? And uh, James touches on all three of those things. But I just want to tell a quick story before uh, we get into the passage. And um, I'll, um, I'll always remember the time that we um, had the amazing blessing uh, back around the year 2000 of taking our whole family, our four children, and Briar and I, we went back to uh, Canada uh, and as part of that trip, we went to Disneyland. And I can never forget the incredible impact um, it, it had on me the morning that we kind of left the hotel and, 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 and started heading towards Anaheim, South L.A., um, to, to see Disneyland. We were all excited and, and fired up, and, we, you know, we kind of, there was like a real buzz and amazing expectation in the family. <laughs> We'd actually had a bit of a scrap the night before in the hotel room. Kids were tired and stuff. And, uh, and, uh, and, you know, and Briar and I got frustrated. We says, okay, that's it. Um, okay, and one of the people, the you kids, there was the four of them were there, and the youngest one was Sienna. She was all about five or six or something. And, and uh, okay, if, if we hear one more peep, we're not going to Disneyland. Briar and I are going to go up ourselves. And young Sienna pipes up, shut up. I'm going anyway. <laughs> I'm, she just... Uh, that's how excited we were. And um, she said something like that. I think it was a little bit more rugged. And, um, and so the next morning, um, we we're on our way, and, and, I, and everything in the area just was about Disneyland, the buses and the, the trams and the hotels, and you could see Mickey Mouse everywhere. And this whole area was just completely uh, uh, set out, like, like hundreds and hundreds and thousands of acres what was constructed around this idea of Disneyland, and at the very center of that was Mickey Mouse. And, and I can still remember standing out there in the cool sunshine, I think it was getting into the winter, and, and standing up there and going, all of this, 
All of this amazing construction and millions and millions of dollars came from an idea. All of this, this entire area of a city dedicated to these cartoon characters and this theme park came from an idea. And I was really impacted last year, and, and I'm sure a lot of you who were here, uh, by Erwin McManus, and he talked about the fact that human beings, of all the living creatures on the planet, one of the things that makes us distinct, one of the things that sets us apart from every other life form on this planet and in the universe, is the fact that we can imagine that human beings can imagine something that's beyond our instinct and that's beyond our reality. We can imagine a future that's better, that's different, that's greater than what we have. And, and, and that thought ties it from Irwin, um, ties into my thinking um, about Disneyland, that somebody had an idea. But the way it connects to our topic tonight is, is that idea was communicated to the world through words or through pictures or other medium. But at the base of, of communication, there are words. And there's a, there's a great story that, uh, that I heard a long time ago, and I love this story, that uh, Walt Disney, back in the early days, in the late 1920s, um, he, he and his brother had formed this company back in 1923. Uh, the, the Disney Corporation, or the Disney Company. Um, and they had a couple of animated uh, uh, characters that they had developed. There was, it was Oswald the Lucky Rabbit. And they were beginning to get some traction, and the company was starting to take off, and, and people were being interested in this new art of animation. And they were at the cutting edge, and Walt took a trip from L.A., where they were based, to New York. And the idea was that he was going to go to Charles Mintz, who was kind of a business partner, and, and they needed more money to take, um, to take the, the lucky rabbit, Oswald, to the next level. And when he arrived in New York and he had his meetings with Charles Mintz, what Charles Mintz had done was he had taken, he'd ripped the carpet from underneath the feet of Walt Disney, and he'd stolen secretly behind his back all of his animators and all of his, art, his artists, and, and he'd paid them more money, and he'd stolen the idea of Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, and, and he had sold it to Universal and had completely bankrupted Walt Disney. And it was March 13, 1928. Now, this is kind of an urban myth, but there's a whole lot of truth at the base of this myth. Walt Disney gets on the train. It's a four-day train trip from New York to L.A. And he telegraphs his brother, Roy, and he says, Roy, everything's okay. I'll explain some stuff to you when I get home. Isn't that what all of us guys do? Honey, just put the spaghetti on. I'll explain some stuff when I get home, right? Isn't that what we do? The big dent in the side of the truck or whatever. And um, I got fired, you know, whatever. And, uh, and he's on the train, and instead of sitting there and in depression and in defeat and having given up, given up, he began sketching on a sketch pad, four days. And he's sketching, and, he, and, he had, and he's looking for a new idea. And, and, and the myth, the urban myth, or the story goes like this, that, that somewhere in the, the middle of the train ride between New York and Los Angeles, Walt falls asleep, and he's been sketching on the sketch pad, and, and as, as he begins to doze off and as the sound of the train wheels begins to blur into his dream and into his thinking, he starts hearing, instead of the clackety-clackety-clack, he starts hearing Mickey, 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 Mickey. And then as the train goes through the tunnel and the train blows its horn, it goes Mickey, 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 mouse, as he's going through the tunnel. And he arrives in, in L.A., and he has an idea. And he presents his brother with this idea, which turns into Mickey Mouse, which turns into Disneyland, which turns into a company that last year made $1.973 billion from its studio, $1.75 billion in its products, uh, $3.31 billion uh, through its parks, 
and 7.7 billion uh, through its uh, different media from an idea, from an idea, communicated by words. And he, made, and he had that much of an impact. So I just want you to think about that, that there is uh, incredible importance in words. And I wanted to show you this clip, of, uh, and it comes from the movie Liar, Liar. Who's seen Liar, Liar? It's a very serious philosophical movie. And, and, and just the, the part that I want to set up for you, uh, uh, it's Jim Carrey in one of his great roles, and he plays the part of Fletcher Reed. And he's a guy, he's a lawyer, and to be successful, he finds it difficult to tell the truth, and he's always letting people down, and he's always lying. Uh, and finally, you know, and he's breaking the heart of his young son, Max, because he's always letting him down. And, 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 um, and anyways, he misses his son's birthday. And, and his son is so brokenhearted, and it's just because of, again, he was trying to cover his tracks and whatever. And he misses his son's birthday, and his son has to blow his candles out by himself, and he makes the wish that his dad will learn to tell the truth. Here's the clip. This is the next day after the son made the wish. It was me! Hi, Mr. Reed! Like the new dress? Whatever it takes to focus off your head! <laughs> What's up, Fletcher? Your cholesterol! Hey! Get me, Logan! Hey, Fletcher! Hey! You're not important enough to remember! What's it gonna be, Mr. Reed? A pockmark, eventually! Don't ask! For God's sakes, don't ask! Alright, you can beat this. It's all a matter of willpower. A test. Something small. Red. Red. All right. Now focus. The color of this pen is. <laughs> the color of this pen is red. The color of the pen that I hold in my hand is royal blue! One lie and I can't say it! is blue. The pen is blue! <laughs> uh, can we give Jim, Jim Carrey a clap? I don't know. Is that, is that all right? Are we allowed to do that? There's an old saying that says that the mouth cannot truthfully speak what the heart doth not believe. Um, and the first point that I want to make tonight from this passage is the fact that I, I want to talk about the incredible importance of words. And again, to set this up, um, you know, we live in a society which is minimizing the importance of words. Our society, uh, um, you know, is often telling us that it doesn't matter what you say. Uh, you, you know, it's, it's more important what you think. And that words aren't important. Um, our society is telling us that, and, and this is, um, and I've been sort of doing a bit of a search in the last couple of weeks, and it, it's, it's telling us that, in, in fact, there's one article that's saying that, that swearing and, uh, and, and, and spewing out anger is good for your health. And they give 10 reasons why, why swearing out loud and, and that the, the words don't matter. And, and it's healthy because it, it, lets, it, it, it lets the emotions go and it, and it makes you feel strong and it helps you to establish your identity. And that words don't matter. And young people are often asking me, well, what does it matter 
if we use this word or that word, because words aren't important. And tonight, I want to say that, you know, from this passage, then what James is saying, that words are incredibly important. And James says this, if anyone is never at fault with what he says, he is a perfect man. He is able to keep his whole body in check. So for starters, that if we can control our tongues, if we can control the words that we say, we can be absolutely perfect. If you could perfectly control your tongue, then your, your whole life and your whole morality, you can be perfect. Now, we know that that's impossible, but it just links the importance, um, of, the importance of the words that we say and the things that we say and the reason that we say them uh, with being perfect. And there was only one person who never spoke a false word, and that was Jesus. He was perfect. And so that's how important words are. Um, you know, words are important because right in the very first chapter of the Bible, in the, in, in the book of Genesis, I mean, what was it that God used to create the entire universe? And God said, let there be light, and there was light. God spoke the universe into being. Everything that's created, all the perfection and the beauty with words. So God used words to speak the universe into existence. In Deuteronomy, it says to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. So again, the words that we hear are our very life. And uh, I mean, we all chase after food, and we all, you know, the human race is continually chasing after, uh, uh, you know, making money and trying to be successful so that we can eat, so that we can live. But the Bible says that the, that the food that you eat is only part of life, and that real life, real life comes from words. Words are important. Whoever of you loves life, in the Psalms it says, whoever of you loves life and desires to see many good days, keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. So if you want to, if you love life, and we all love life, we all love life, and we all want to see many, not just many days. I don't think many of us want to just live many days, but we want to see many good days. And what's the secret? What's the key to that? The words that you speak. The Bee Gees said, it's only words, and words are all I have. Do you want me to sing that? I can do that. Let me read you some of the words from the song. And, this, and I've looked up, like, so many songs talk about words and the importance or the lack thereof. And the Bee Gees, um, this is Barry Gibb, he says, now, my love, right now, there'll be no other time, and I can show you. Now, now, my love, talk in everlasting words and dedicate them all to me, and I will give you all my life. If here, uh, I'm here, and if you should call me, uh, you think that I don't even mean a single word that I say. It's only words, and words are all I have to take your heart away. It's only words, and words are all I have. Colin, do you want me to join you guys for that final song, or? Yeah. <laughs> it's only words, but James is giving us a different story, that words are far more important. Um, you know, we talked uh, another time here on a Sunday night, we talked about whether women speak more words than guys, um, and, you know, as you look at the different arguments on, it's looking like it's 50-50, that that's a fallacy that men don't actually speak less words. There's kind of an average that we speak 15,000 words per day. And James is telling us that those words are supremely important. If you speak 15,000 words a day, that means you speak 383 million words in a 70-year lifespan. Yeah, that's awesome. And how important are those words? Or if those words are important, how are you using your words? Um, they, uh, there's a list of the top 10 motivational speakers or the people who have impacted the 20th century more than anyone else. And I'll just kind of go through some of the names in the list. And again, this is, this is uh, you know, the world recognizes the importance of words. And, and uh, societies and nations put forth leaders. Now, whether that leader is really responsible for that society or, or, or that country at that particular time, sometimes leaders are just puppets. But they put forward spokespeople. People who can speak because words can move countries. 
So we've got Fidel Castro was number nine on the list, Leon Trotsky, um, who was the founder of the Red Army in, in, um, in Russia, Nelson Mandela from South Africa, Winston Churchill, who we heard about this morning from Craig, he's number four, uh, Martin Luther King is number two, and JFK, they've, obviously it's an American list, JFK is number one, John F. Kennedy, but number three on the list was Adolf Hitler. And I can still remember um, when I was traveling and I was at my uncle's place and he had Mein Kampf, uh, Adolf Hitler's autobiography, in the bookshelf. And I just started reading it one night out of interest. Well, what did he write? And I happened to open up to this page before I fell asleep. And it was Adolf Hitler coming to the realization when he was a young man that he could move people by the power of speech. And that's about all I read. But it was powerful to read it in his own words that he realized at some young point in his life that he could move people by the power of his speech. And Jesus says this about the importance of words, but I tell you, but I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word that you have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. So out of the 383 million words that you will speak in average in a 70-year lifetime, Jesus says you will have to give account for every one of those words. Words are important, as James tells us. Words are important. And secondly, the incredible impact of words. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body. But it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. So words not only are important, but words have impact. Uh, James is telling us that a, that a tiny word, that a small spark, can, can, can light an entire fire, an entire forest on fire. And a small word, a simple word, can have an incredible impact. Um, the largest fire in the history of the world was in 1825 in Miramachi, uh, New Brunswick in Canada, and it burnt three million acres of land. Now that translated into New Zealand, that would be all of the land north of Auckland gone in one fire. And that fire began with a match, the tiniest match, the tiniest spark, and it started a fire that burnt three million acres and killed 160 people in Canada. And James is telling us that our words have far greater impact on the world than you can imagine. Your words, my words, have an incredible impact on the society, on the people around you, and on the future. I can still remember um, uh, back in the Tapuki days when we, uh, we, we had a Sasquatch hunt, which we do now with our young people here in, in BBC, which is we, we basically allow, you know, 100 young people to run at night out into a farm and chase each other while the leaders all sleep in the vans. Uh, it's a really great event. And at the end of the event, it was pouring with rain this night, and we had a bonfire, which was massive. A farmer had put it together for us with his front-end loader, and it would be almost up to the ceiling up there. We had this, just this huge fire, and it was pouring with rain. And uh, I had a bunch of guys, and I said, well, hey, let's get, let's get this thing started, and let's just do it with, a, with just a tiny fire over here, and we'll just feed in some paper and some twigs, and we'll get this fire going, and I think we can get this whole thing burning. Uh, and on the other side, we had the petrol head boys, you know, the, all the, you know, the boy racer guys, and they said, now nah, we can do it our way, and we'll do it with petrol. And so we were over here, we were gathering little twigs and sticks and little paper. We started this little fire, and it was still raining, and it was, kept going out. And on the other side, I mean, these guys were dominating. They got the petrol, and they got the matches, and they threw the petrol on the fire, and they lit it, and it blew up. And one guy was on fire, and he was rolling on the ground, and, and he's a guy that's always in trouble, and he's always on fire. And we, so we just looked at each other and said, oh, Lawrence is on fire. And... Uh, and he rolled it out. And over on our side, man, it didn't look like we were doing anything. We just were not achieving anything. And uh, we were getting laughed at and getting mocked at. And the guy says, ah, let's not have a bonfire anyway. Let's just light our marshmallows with our lighters or something. And then as they came around to our side, that little fire got to about a foot in diameter. And then it was like two foot. And, and you know the story. Uh, by the end of it, this massive pile of logs was just burning ferociously. We couldn't stand within 30 meters of it. It was so hot. And we started it with the tiniest spark. Our words have an incredible impact. Um, and just some scriptures. You know, in Genesis 27, you know, Isaac had, uh, had two sons, Jacob and Esau. 
And when Esau heard his father's words, he burst out with a loud and a bitter cry. And he said to his father, bless me too, my father, because um, uh, Jacob had gone and stolen his father's blessing. So Isaac was, was going to give a blessing over his sons, and, and, Isaac, and Jacob uh, had gone in and he had deceived his father because, because Isaac wanted to give that blessing to Esau. And Jacob had gone and stolen it. And when Esau found out that Isaac had received this blessing, it was going, he knew that that blessing would affect his entire destiny. And he cries out with a bitter cry. He says, Father, bless me too. Because he knew the impact. He knew the impact that words have. Anxiety weighs down the heart, but a kind word cheers it up. When someone is anxious, your words, your words can cheer up an anxious heart. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, Lord. Teach me your decrees. With my lips I recount all the laws that, you, um, that, that come from your mouth. That words can actually, as you take in words and as words reside in your heart, words can keep you from sin. And who doesn't want to be free from sin? Psalm 5.9 says, Not a word from their mouth can be trusted. Their heart is filled with malice. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they tell lies. Their throat is an open grave. That words can be like a grave. Words can bring death. They have a tremendous impact. Proverbs 15.1 says, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. And how often do we turn on the radio in the morning or check your news feed on a computer or uh, read a newspaper, and how often are our hearts broken by what goes on in New Zealand that the, the previous night with violence and death and murder? And, and, and here in this passage... Words have impact. A gentle answer can turn away wrath. How cool would it be if we can learn and if we could spread this learning throughout this country? Only four million odd people in this country. How cool would it be if we could, if we could impact people that a gentle answer would turn away wrath? And when we start reading our newspapers and looking at our news feeds, there's less and less violence and anger in our country. And words can have that impact. Do you know anybody who's sick? The tongue that brings healing is a tree of life, but a deceitful tongue crushes the spirit. Words have the, the possibility to bring healing. And again, Proverbs 15:7 says that the lips of the wise spread knowledge, but not so the hearts of fools. Proverbs 16 says that a wise man's heart guides his mouth and his lips promote instruction. Pleasant words are a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and healing to the bones. Isn't it cool that James is, is, is giving us a key that can bring all these things, all these things that you and I desire and we want to see, and it breaks our hearts when we don't see them. And how about this? Proverbs 25, a word aptly spoken is like apples of gold in settings of silver, that words are precious. Ecclesiastes 12.11 says that the words of the wise are like, are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. And um, a goad was what a shepherd used in ancient times in the days of Ecclesiastes. It's like a long stick. It could be 10 foot long and it was sharp. And it helped direct animals in a way that was safe. And the words that we use... Think about that, that, that if we use words properly, and this is what James is saying, the impact of words, that our words can be like a goad directing sheep or cattle away from death and destruction and starvation and something that's going to hurt them, and we could direct them and guide them and goad them into a place that's safe. Firmly embedded nails, something that's concrete, something that's that, uh, solid construction. Firmly embedded nails, something that's, that, will has, that will have an impact and have, have, have a good effect in someone's life. Something that's not going to wash away in the wind. Given by one shepherd. Isaiah 50 says, Sovereign Lord has given me a well-instructed tongue to know the word that sustains the weary. Do we know... Friends, have we got friends or family who are weary, people who are tired and worn down by the battles of life? Our words can sustain the weary. And finally, this one that we've probably all heard before. But when you think about 
the impact of, the, of this verse, the tongue has the power of life and death. There are those who love it, and those who love it will eat its fruit. The tongue has the power of life and death. The words that we speak have the effect of bringing life to people, life to our children, life to our friends, life to our church, life to our city. Or they could bring death. The power of life and death is in the tongue, is in words. And the question that all of this, um, you know, the question that is begged by all of this, and I'll just go back to that earlier passage, because, you know, if you're like me, you're sitting there and you're thinking, well, man, I mean, words just flow so freely from my mouth, and I'm about 50-50, I can say positive, encouraging words one minute, and then I can just blow it. And just kind of a word can stumble out of your mouth. I mean, it kind of just flies out like a dove, and it can just do its damage. And how many of you, now be honest, how many of you, you know, maybe at the beginning of a holiday or it's a day off, and you just let a flippant word go out of your mouth, and it it can affect somebody that you love, and the second that that word is out of your mouth, you know that you are in for a bad day. Can anybody relate to that? And I've often thought, I can, I can remember this in, in heaps of my friendships, where I, it's just so easy just to let a word out, just a casual thought without thinking of the impact that that word will have on the other person. And then you see its effect straight away, and then you realize how they've taken it because you haven't thought about it. And I've often thought that words are like arrows, and they just go in so easily, but then try pulling an arrow out. Once you've spoken a word, how difficult is it to change the effect? Is that right? Amen? Words have incredible impact. And so the question that I want to ask is, well, how can we ever... Oh, and James says that no man can tame the tongue. So James talks about this incredible impact, the importance of words and the impact that they have. And then he says this, he says, "But, but who can tame the tongue? Because it's just this restless fire. It's this restless evil. And he's talking about the negative, you know, the downside of it. And so the question I just want to finish on is, is, how can we control our tongues? How can we ever get this right? I mean, we speak these 300-odd million words in a lifetime. It's just so easy to say the wrong thing. How can we get it right? And James tells us. It's the incredible inception of words. Now, I use this kind of word, inception, because I tried to keep it all eyes. So importance, you can give me a hand for this. You know, importance, impact, inception. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Man, that was a really pathetic clap, but that's okay. I'm going to be encouraged by that clap. And the inception being, of course, the origin. Well, where do words come from? And James actually gives us the answer, and he gives us hope that, that we can actually strive to become people, that as we go through our lives, that, that our words can become like those precious golden silver things. Out of the same mouth comes praise and cursing. My brothers, this should not be. Can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers, can a fig tree bear olives, or can a grapevine bear figs? Neither can a salt spring produce fresh, fresh water. So in this verse, James is actually giving us hope. Because he's saying words just don't come from nowhere. Words just don't really come out of thin air. And, and in this verse, he gives us the picture that figs come from a fig tree, and olive trees come, olives come from an olive tree, and grapes come from a grapevine. And fresh water comes from a fresh spring, and salt water comes from a salt spring or the ocean. There's a story of um, Enrico and Marta, and they uh, were swept off a Brazilian beach out into the Atlantic Ocean. And, uh, and they went 100 miles out into the ocean, and they were lost. And people were searching for them, and they, they were out there for two or three days. They had nothing to eat, and they had nothing to drink. And they were dying of thirst. And they knew that they couldn't drink the ocean because it was salt water, and they tried, and they spewed up. And, so, and they were dying of thirst. It was the third day, and Enrico died. And Marta was just about to die, and he finally... He, he finally just gave in, and he said, well, if I die, I die. I, I'm dying of thirst. And he put his hand in the water, and he couldn't see land. He was 100 miles from the coast. He put his hand in the water, and he drank, and it was fresh water. 
It was fresh water because they are in the outflow of the Amazon River. And the water flows 100 miles out to the ocean, and it was fresh. And Enrico had everything that he needed to live all around him, but he just didn't take it and drink it. And Marta lived and came back and told the tale. And the Bible tells us that words have a source, that they come from somewhere. And, and, and what can you and I do? What can you and I do to fill up this place in our hearts, this place in our lives that will produce beautiful words? Matthew 12 says this, For out of the overflow of the heart the mouth speaks. The good man brings forth good things out of the good stored up in him, and the evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. Matthew 12, 36 says, But I tell you that men will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every careless word that they have spoken. So how can you fill up? How can you fill up the storehouse of your heart with good things? Zephaniah 1.7 says this, and, and I touched on this a couple of weeks ago when I spoke on quiet time with God, but I just have to go back there because I don't think there's anything more important that we can challenge each other on because this answers so many of the different issues that we face as Christians. Zephaniah says, be silent before the sovereign Lord. This is how you and I can fill up this place within us so that we will be overflowing because the because as Jesus said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. So how can we fill up our hearts in such a way that what comes out of our mouths is this beautiful, graceful, encouraging words, sometimes directional, sometimes, sometimes having to tell people off, but it's always done out of a spirit of love and grace. Zephaniah says this, is be silent before the Lord. Habakkuk says, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. And Psalms 46.10 says, Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. So there's, there's, there's a first step here that James, James hints at. And the first step is that we need to be quiet. And, and I speak often to young people, and I, 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 I sometimes feel almost hopeless that young people, because the world is so noisy and there's so much media and there's so much, so much to grab the attention, and, and, and I'm... I'm vulnerable to it as well. And there's just so much noise in our society today, absolutely more than there has ever been in the history of the, of the planet. There has never been so much to grab the attention of our young people or you and I. And James or Zephaniah and Habakkuk and, and David in the Psalms, he says, be still, find a quiet place. And only you can do that. And it's, it's, it's a command. And, and, and you are either going to be obedient to that or you are not going to be obedient to it. And I believe that if you're not going to be obedient, if you're not going to take a step, a disciplined step in your own life to find a quiet place, whether it be in the morning or at night, and if we don't take, make the decision to find a quiet place, we will never receive that word which will fill us and then become an overflow. How can I fill the storehouses of my heart with good? Be still and know that I am God. And then in Luke 9, when Jesus appears to the, to the three uh, disciples, and, uh, and, and you know the story, it's the transfiguration story, and there's Peter, James, and John. And, and Peter is always the spokesman. Peter is always talking, and he's rabbiting off, and he's going, well, Lord, should I build a shelter? And, and uh, you know, there's Moses and Elijah, and, and he's talking and talking and talking. And, and this is the voice that thunders down from heaven and says, this is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. So basically, the voice from heaven is saying, Peter, be quiet and listen to God. And as we read at the beginning, let the word of God come into that silence. Let the word of God begin to form within you, be, begin to fill you and transform you. Uh, do not be conformed any longer to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And let the word of God in the quietness, let it fill you. And then as the word of God fills you, and the word of God is living and active, and active. It's more powerful than, uh, than a double-edged sword. It's able to divide between bone and marrow and, and your soul and your spirit. And it can point out the thoughts and the intentions of your heart. The Word of God not only points out the thoughts and the intentions, but it transforms you as you understand it and as you listen to it and as you memorize it and as you feed on the Word of God because we don't live by bread alone, but we live by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And that Word not only challenges you and changes your mind, it changes your spirit. 
And then you become like that freshwater spring. You become like that Amazon River flowing out. And it becomes more difficult to say cutting and negative and selfish and lying words, bitter words, words that destruct, words that take life. And it becomes more and more natural for you as you are filled with the word of God and as the word of God transforms you into the character of Jesus Christ, then you find it more and more difficult to speak negative, destructive words. And you find yourself just speaking these beautiful, glorious, life-giving words because the power of life and death is in the tongue. Words are important. They have tremendous impact. And they come from a source. And you get to decide what's in that source. You get to fill that source up with whatever you want. I just want to finish with a story um, that just, to me, I heard this years ago, and uh, it just had such an effect on me. Um, and it's a powerful story. It's the story of Teddy. You've probably heard it, um, but I think it's, uh, it's worthwhile listening to it again. And it's a story that talks about the incredible impact of words and the incredible impact and effect that you and I can have in our lives with the words that we use. There's a story many years ago of an elementary teacher. Her name was Mrs. Thompson. And as she stood in front of her fifth grade class, on the very first day of school, she told the children a lie. Like most teachers, she looked at her students and said that she loved them all the same. But that was impossible because there in the front row, slumped in his seat, was a little boy named Teddy Stoddard. Mrs. Thompson had watched Teddy the year before and noticed that he didn't play well with the other children, that his clothes were messy, and that he constantly needed a bath. And Teddy could be unpleasant. It got to the point where Mrs. Thompson would actually take delight in marking his papers with a broad red pen, making bold X's and then putting a big F on the top of his papers. At the school where Mrs. Thompson taught, she was required to review each student's past records, and she put Teddy's off until last. However, when she reviewed his file, she was in for surprise. Teddy's first grade teacher wrote, Teddy is a bright child with a ready laugh. He does his work neatly and has good manners. He is a joy to be around. His second grade teacher wrote, Teddy is an excellent student, well-liked by his classmates, but he is troubled because his mother has a terminal illness and life at home must be a struggle. His third grade teacher wrote, his mother's death has been hard on him. He tries to do his best, but his father doesn't show much interest. And his home life will soon affect him if some steps aren't taken. Teddy's fourth grade teacher wrote, Teddy is withdrawn and doesn't show much interest in school. He doesn't have many friends and sometimes sleeps in class. By now, Mrs. Thompson realized the problem. She was ashamed of herself. She felt even worse when her students brought her Christmas presents wrapped in beautiful ribbons and bright paper except for Teddy's. His present was clumsily wrapped in the heavy brown paper that he got from a grocery bag. Mrs. Thompson took pains to open it in the middle of the other presents, and some of the children started to laugh when she found a rhinestone bracelet with some of the stones missing and a bottle that was one quarter full of perfume. But she stifled the children's laughter when she exclaimed, she used her words, how pretty the bracelet was and putting it on, and she dabbed some of the perfume on her wrist. Teddy Stoddard stayed after school that day just long enough to say, Mrs. Thompson, today you smell just like my mother used to. After the children left, she cried for at least an hour. On that very day, she quit teaching, reading, and writing, and arithmetic. Instead, she began to teach children. Mrs. Thompson paid particular attention to Teddy. As she worked with him, his mind seemed to come alive. The more she encouraged him, the faster he responded. By the end of the year, Teddy had become one of the smartest children in class. And despite her lie that she would love all the children the same, Teddy became one of her teacher's pets. A year later, she found a note under her door from Teddy telling her that she was still the best teacher he had ever had in his whole life. 
Six years went by before she got another note from Teddy. He then wrote that he had finished high school, third in his class, and that, he was, and that she was still the best teacher he had ever had in his whole life. Four years after that, she got another letter saying that while things had been tough at times, he'd stayed in school and he'd stuck with it and would soon graduate from college with the highest of honors. He assured Mrs. Thompson that she was still the best and favorite teacher he'd ever had in his whole life. Then four more years passed and yet another letter came and this time he, ex he explained that after he got his bachelor's degree, he decided to do to go a little further. The letter explained that she was still the best and favorite teacher he had had. But now his name was a little longer. The letter was signed, Theodore F. Stoddard, M.D. The story doesn't end there, you see. There was yet another letter that spring, and Teddy said that he'd met this girl and he was going to be married. And he explained that his father had died a couple of years ago, and then he was wondering if Mrs. Thompson might agree to sit in the place at the wedding that was usually reserved for the mother of the groom. Of course, Mrs. Thompson did. And guess what? She wore that bracelet, the one with several rhinestones missing. She made sure that she was wearing the perfume that Teddy remembered his mother wearing on their last Christmas together. They hugged each other, and Dr. Stoddard whispered in Mrs. Thompson's ear, and he said, thank you, Mrs. Thompson, for believing in me. Thank you so much for making me feel important and showing me that I could make a difference. Mrs. Thompson said with tears in her eyes, she whispered back, she said, Teddy, you've got it all wrong. You were the one that taught me that I could make a difference. I didn't know how much, how to teach until I met you. Let's pray. Father, Father, we just ask you, and why don't we stand? Father, we just ask you together, Lord, with this short life that we have, with these 300-odd million words that we're going to use, we ask you, God, for the grace, for the grace to change us, and to develop us, to impact us, to transform us. Father, give us the courage and the backbone and the discipline to be still before the Lord, to make a decision right now, tonight, to set aside time like we all know we should. Father, so work in our hearts as the people of God that we absolutely, with determination, set aside time to allow you to speak, to memorize your word, to meditate on your word, to allow your word to do its miraculous work in our hearts, to transform us, to fill us up with a wellspring of overflowing love and encouragement and goodness and clarity and truth and the courage to speak the truth, the courage not to gossip, the courage not to backbite. Father, we pray that you change us, cause us to be more like your son. In Jesus' name, amen.